Well, good morning, everyone. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Ross, when you walked out, the kids thought it was Jesus coming into baptism. Well, that's what all the excitement was about. Look, it's Jesus. Now it's just Ross. In 1873, artist uh, Victor Hartman passed away suddenly of a brain embolism. Uh, he was a Russian artist. And the next year, a group of his friends put together an art exhibit at the Royal Imperial Academy in St. Petersburg. Among those was his close friend, um, a famous composer, Russian composer, by the name of Modest Mazorsky. Uh, Mazorsky had become a pretty famous composer um, through uh, ballet and other art forms. And as he wandered the halls, looking at the art of his friend, Victor Hartman, he was inspired to write a series of piano pieces based on the works of art. Um, these piano pieces became very famous because they, uh, they helped develop new styles of musical thought and composition for the 1800s, more toward a move what is called of a, a expressionism and expressing an idea. And so the, the works of art that inspired him he wrote these 10 compositional piano pieces, and even in between the 10 pieces, he put kind of a connector known as the promenade, like he was going from one gallery to another, the promenade, the, the gallery that he was walking through. One of the works of art that inspired him was uh, this, this painting. This painting... Um, by Hartman, this becomes um, really the best-known piece of what's called Pictures at an Exhibition by Mazorsky. Uh, it was set to uh, piano pieces, but they're set to orchestra about 50 years later by Ravel, who is also a very famous composer. And uh, this particular piece of art becomes the best known of the 10 compositional pieces. This is known as the Beatar Gates of the capital of Kiev, uh, later known uh, famously as the Great Gates of Kiev. The work that you're listening to is the orchestral setting. You may recognize it, it's pretty well known. It becomes, it becomes a foundational piece for a lot of brass and other things that you hear. And you can even, if you listen to it, you'll hear like the Olympic theme, you'll hear other kind of ideas that you've, you've heard in your life. If you go to Kiev today, you can still see the archway of this painting. And this morning, I'd like to begin our service, this sermon, by praying for the church in the Ukraine. By praying, because there's a great connect between the Christian church in America and the church in Ukraine. And though we don't know all the political implications of what's going to take place, 
let's pray for the body because when one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. Amen? Join me as we pray. And I'm just going to let this music play in the background, first of all, because it's awesome. And second, it's majestic and it reminds us of the goodness and greatness of our God. Lord, we thank you this morning that you rule over all the earth. Nothing is beyond your sight. Nothing is beyond your hands. And this morning, we want to lift up the church in Ukraine. We want to lift up our fellow believers across the globe. Lord, we do acknowledge that there are those in pain today. There are those who are using their churches as bomb shelters. There are those who, are, who are, have even taken up arms. And Lord, we just, we pray that for your protection over our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine. We pray that, God, your hand would be upon them. We pray that the gospel in the midst of a terrible situation would still go forth. We pray, God, for your blessings to, to be upon them. Lord, may you use this circumstance and this situation to go beyond anything we could ask or imagine so that the kingdom of God would be proclaimed. Lord, we thank you. We bless you. We glory in your name, O oh Lord. You're a great God and greatly to be praised. And though our eyes wonder at times what's going on, our faith and our trust is in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes that music school education still uh, helps. Um, <clears throat> Contrast those gates with this passage from Luke. Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. This is from Luke uh, chapter 13. Jesus has been teaching great things. Crowds are following him. And as he's walking, someone says to him, Hey, Lord, aren't, aren't there going to be more who are going to be saved? Now, different commentators uh, reflect on this line, and they're debating with one another about the thought. But the idea generally seems to be that this person is saying, hey, isn't everyone who's born Jewish saved already? And Jesus is going to contrast that idea that everybody born Jewish is saved with this idea that there is what Paul is going to later in Romans 9, 10, and 11 talk about. There is, a, there is a natural Israel and there's a spiritual Israel. There are those who are born, and, and not everybody who's going through the big gate, like the great gates of Kiev, not everybody who's going through that is going to be saved. Instead, the door to the entryway of the kingdom of God is small. It raises the question, doesn't it? Why is it so hard? Isn't the grace of God that I read about that covers all of our sins, isn't that big? Doesn't God's grace cover? 
why is this door so small? And what do I have to do to enter this small door? Is this about what God has done, or is this about what I have to do in order to get into the kingdom of God? Now, let me just say, I'm not going to answer all those theological questions because they've been debated for 2,000 years, and they're still being debated. But I do think in the lack of all clear answers, I can bring us some that will help us understand the nature of the kingdom of God. We're entering a section of Luke um, that I call the teachings of Jesus. There are some teachings that are unique to the gospel of Luke that aren't found in Matthew, Mark, or John. This actually is one of them. Now, you may notice here in Luke 13 some similarities to passages in Mark and Matthew that have to do with big gates. But this is the only one that talks about the little door. And he goes on and says in this passage, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. Oh my goodness, now the door has gone from small to closed. The little door, the closed door. And Jesus is saying when that door is closed, the owner has closed it forever. And the people on the outside who are crying for the door to be open will say to him, will beg him to open and he'll say, I don't know you or where you come from. They will, then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. Listen, I, I, there's no way to get apart, get away from the Jewish implications of this passage. They're saying, hey, you were, we, we ate and drank with you. We're, we're the people of God, basically. We've been with you. And he's going to say, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. Jesus' proclamation here is pretty, really profound. And it has implications on who are the people of God. Who is in the kingdom of God? Because he goes on and says, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. People will come, listen to this. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Reminder, who is Luke? Who is his target audience? This is like the 14th week of the book of Luke. If you don't get this, then I'm going to have to back up and preach 14 weeks. Who, who, who's his target audience? The Gentiles are his target audience. And so he's saying, even within the context of what Jesus taught, it's not limited to Paul. Sometimes people try to make this great divide between Paul and Jesus. And you see, I think, how the gospel is the same at all. And Jesus is proclaiming, as Paul proclaims in Romans, that the, the people of God are the people of God that God calls, that are a part of his kingdom. 
And Jesus is prophesying that there are going to be those who are outside, north, east, south, and west. This is a, a, a euphemism for the Gentiles. Those outside of Judaism are going to come in. Those who were first are going to be last. Who were the first? The Jews. Who's going to be out? The Jews. Those who don't believe. Jesus is going to say, entry into the kingdom is the same for all. We come into God's kingdom by his grace. We come again to God's kingdom carrying nothing on our own. The door is small. It's big enough for you. And as we're going to see, it's big enough for you, but not all your junk. Not all the stuff you want to bring. Not all the things that you think should be a part. The clarity is this. It is the kingdom plus nothing. You can't add the kingdom to your already existing life. Jesus says you have to empty yourself. And the grace of God, when you're dead, you're dead. You can take nothing with you. And Jesus says in your death, when you're raised to walk in a new life, you're not taking any of that with you. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to Luke 9. And didn't I tell you to turn to Luke 9 to start with? Luke 9. And I want to look at three guys who come to Jesus and talk about coming, following him. The idea of entering into the kingdom. The idea of discipling. The idea of following Jesus. And in Luke 9, we see three different guys who come to Jesus. Two of these guys are found in other gospels, but a third guy is not, and so that's why I'm preaching it as a unique teaching. And let's look at um, the kingdom of God as a result and entry into this kingdom. The first point is this. This has to do with the nature of the kingdom. Here I am in Luke 9, verses 57 and following. You'll, you'll remember this passage, Luke 9, verses 57 and following. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Here's the idea. This guy comes to Jesus and he says, hey, wherever you go, I'll go. I'm going to follow you. Now, great things have been happening. The transfiguration has happened. Jesus has cast out a demon. He's taught some already. And now he gets to this point. This guy says, I am in. I'm going to follow him because following him is going to take me somewhere. And Jesus, in preaching this message of the nature of the kingdom, says this. Getting you into the kingdom of God will get you nothing of worldly value. Listen to me again. Getting into the kingdom of God is not going to bring you or guarantee you earthly stuff. If there's any passage to me that goes against the prosperity doctrine that's proclaimed in many corners of the church today, it's this. Here's the nature of the kingdom. It's Jesus. And Jesus alone. We try and tie our 20th century perspective of materialism into the gospel because it really sounds good. And by the way, it is very appealing. 
It's very appealing to the world around us to say, if you come into God's kingdom, God promises you wealth. God promises you health. God promises you prosperity. And I believe that there is a nature of the kingdom of God that will be fulfilled in the end of time where things are going to be but in this world, you will have trouble. There's your promise. You will have problems. I've gone all over the world teaching. And I'll just point blank say this. One of the unbelievable heresies that has permeated the world is Christian television. Because 90-something percent of it or more is prosperity doctrine-based. I've gone into villages in Africa that had absolutely nothing and heard a preacher get up and proclaim the prosperity doctrine. And you're looking around and then took up three offerings to justify the doctrine that went so that the wealth, whatever it was, was going to be gained by him. I couldn't help myself. When it was my turn to preach... I would preach this because we need to hear around the globe the truth of this, that, that the nature of God's kingdom, it is a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. It is a nature of being changed. And the natural, so to speak, order of the move from God's kingdom is this. You must be born again. I tell you the truth, no man can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of the water and of spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. The nature of the kingdom is in it, its... It, it, it's a spiritual kingdom in the sense that we are born again. We're born of the Spirit. This has a lot of implications. And, and again, I know I'm coming hard against the prosperity doctrine. I'm unapologetic on this. Because it has permeated even those of us who are against it unapologetically. You can't help but get this greed aspect in your heart that runs contrary to the word of God. To say, I call, I'm calling you not to save your life, but to give it away. I'm calling you not to collect things, but I'm going to give you things. Why? So that you can be a generous giver. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. Anything shy of those ideas is going to lead us contrary to God's kingdom. The nature of the kingdom and this small door runs contrary to the big gate that everyone wants to hear about, which is come into the kingdom, get wealthy, get healthy, get everything you want, bring it all with you. The road is big, the gate is big, let's go. And so Jesus says, I'm not even going to promise you a hole in the ground. Foxes have holes. I'm not going to promise you a nest. Birds have nests. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. And you won't be any different. 
Because in this world, have peace. Because you're going to have trouble. We got trouble right here. Old reference. In this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Do you know, here's the incredible news. If Jesus is the overcomer, that makes us more than overcomers. You're more than an overcomer. Why? Because he overcame. And you can have peace. We follow him. The nature of God's kingdom is this. We come in on his terms, not ours. We come in through this small door, not because we earned our way. The grace of God is not that we have to earn our way in through the small door. The grace of God is this, that there's a door at all. The urgency of the kingdom is this. Here's the second guy. He says to another man, I'm still in Luke 9, I'm just going to read the rest of the verses. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, the first guy volunteered. Hey, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. This guy, Jesus calls. He says to the guy, like he said to his uh, disciples, follow me. And then the guy says, Lord, Lord, I'm going to. But first, let me go and bury my father. Now, in my head, all the times I used to read this, I used to think, you know, he, he's got a sick dad. He's, his dad's dying, and he needs to go and help his family because aren't we supposed to take care of our parents? His dad's dying, he needs to go bury his father. I'd like for you to notice, nowhere in here does it say his dad is sick. I mean, his dad could have been as healthy as a horse. His dad could have been doing great. Basically, the guy is saying, hey, I'll follow you, but I'm going to follow you on my timing. I want to follow you, but not yet. Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You're like, wait a minute. How can somebody dead bury somebody who's dead? Aren't they buried already? Jesus flips it again into a spiritual context. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead, I think is what he's saying. Let the dead bury the dead. You've got a higher calling than burying dead people. You, you've got a calling to make people alive, if you'll follow me. Augustine famously said after hearing Ambrose preach, God, I want to follow you, but... Not yet. Why? Because he was living his best life now. He was really enjoying himself, so to speak. Many of us think we want to follow God, but we want to follow God on our own terms. We want to follow God when it's convenient for us. We want to follow God someday in the future. God, let me get wealthy. Lord, let me experience life. Let me do this or that. And the urgency of the kingdom is this. It is today. You have no promise for tomorrow. You, you don't know when the door might be shut. The urgency of the kingdom is following God today. Jesus in Matthew says, if anyone 
If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, this is coming off the parable of um, the guy who kept building bigger barns. Basically saying, I'm going to follow you, God, but not yet. I got a bigger barn to build. And then that night, he passes away. And Jesus is saying, what good is it? What good is it if you gain everything around you but forfeit your soul in the process? Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to what he said. And he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Listen, people, if this passage doesn't cause you problems, I don't know which ones will. Wait a minute, Jesus. You want me to hate my parents? You want me to hate my family? You want me to hate? I didn't think we were people of hate. I think we were people of love. Jesus isn't saying that idea of hating. He's talking about this idea that you can put nothing in front of the kingdom of God. Nothing. That the kingdom of God, your relationship with Christ, your relationship with God is so urgent that it must be number one. Elton Trueblood, in his book, it's a, it's a book on the Ten Commandments, he said, there is no greater difference in any numeric category than the difference between the number one and the number two. He goes on to illustrate, saying this, a man who has one wife is a monogamist. A man who has two wives might as well have 50. He's a polygamist. He's moved from the singular to the multiple. There's no greater difference. Listen, Jesus is saying God has to be first in your heart and your affections. The kingdom of God must be first in everything you do. Seek first God's what? kingdom and his righteousness, and then everything else will be added unto you. Urgency of the kingdom is now. The urgency of the kingdom is follow God now. Don't delay. And the demand of the kingdom is this. A third guy says, Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, this one seems harsh, too. He's saying, all this guy's saying is, okay, let me do this. Let me just go by, back and say adios to the fam, and then I'll be on my way. I'll follow you. And Jesus is saying, you can't look back at the kingdom. You have to look forward. The demand of the kingdom is today forward, not today backward. 
Listen to me again. The demand of the kingdom is today forward, not today backward. That when we look backwards, I don't know anything about plowing. My dad was a farmer. Um, we'd be driving across the countryside, and, you know, as kids, we'd say to dad, hey, what is that? Cotton. Dad, what is that? Soybean. Dad, what is that? Corn. And you know what I figured out years later? He was lying. He didn't know those plants from anything, but it was a lot easier to say anything, and the kids would shut up, and we'd move on. Dad's not with us. He, has, he can't defend himself today. But he did talk to me about plowing at one time, and the idea of plowing is when he was on a tractor, but when you're on a tractor, you have to look forward. You just pick out a point, and you plow toward it. That if you look back to see how you were doing, you're all over the place. For us, the kingdom, the demand of the kingdom is look ahead. L keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Look, look forward. Listen to these passages. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot love both God and money. By the way, it's interesting. I kept trying to fix the word money in here because I'm like, well, money shouldn't be capitalized. But in my Bible, it is capitalized. It's an idea of the personhood, so to speak, of money. That's what kind of ownership it has on your life. You cannot serve both God and money. The demand of the kingdom, again, is singular. It is forward-looking. He goes on and says, you adulterous people, this is in James, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a, chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of, of God. The nature of the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom is that there's no promise of anything besides relationship with God. The urgency of the kingdom is today. The demand of the kingdom is that you forward think. Do you remember the story, Dave was reminding me of this yesterday, and I went back and looked at it. Do you remember the story of Elijah and Elisha? Elijah is told by God, go appoint Elisha as your successor. So he goes to Elisha, and he says to Elisha, something like, follow me, you're going to be my successor. And do you remember what Elisha says? Hey, let me go, no, what he says is, let me go say goodbye to my parents. And Elisha, Elijah says, what's that to me? What do I care, basically? It's, it's this nature of kind of like, who, who am I to you? The passage then goes on and says that Elisha doesn't go back and say goodbye to his family. He goes back and he kills his oxen, he burns his plows, and he says, I'm never going back. I mean, he so destroys the past that there's only one path forward. The demand of the kingdom is this. We're the whole realm of nature mind. That'd be a present far too small. Think about this, people. If I had everything in nature, if it were mine, that's a present far too small. But love, so amazing, so divine, 
demands my soul, my life, my all. Why is the door so small? Because only you can go through it. You can't take other stuff. You can't take other things. You can't take your past through. You can't take your stuff through. All there's room for is you. And the demand, the urgency of it is today, now. Don't put it off. Paul says, we've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved him, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why baptism is so incredibly significant. I'm crucified. I'm dead. The old me, gone. This is the new me. Now, if you're like the new me, Sometimes the old you seems to come out through the new you. On occasion, some of the ugly stuff of the old me will come out in the new me. But you know what? Because I'm so forward-looking, I'm going to not say this old me is me. Instead, I'm saying, no, that's not who I am anymore. Instead, this is who I am. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am a member. I am a part of the kingdom of God. I'm not going to look back at the old me. I'm not going to let the devil lie to me and say to me, that's who you are. No, I'm going to stand in the fullness of Christ now. I'm going to stand in the good news of Christ. I'm not going to be condemned any longer. Because there's no condemnation in Christ. This message is both so simple and so unbelievably hard to receive. It's so difficult because we still think, I got to do it. Instead of, God has done it for me. I don't know how to picture this little door anymore other than there's this door that I go through and like some science fiction movie, it just burns everything off of me so that when I come through, I basically come through naked on the other side, a new person and nothing from the other side came through with me. Maybe a radical way to picture it, and maybe I'm reading too much into it. But if you combine these pictures of the, the nature of God's kingdom with his urgency and its demand, you come away saying, not, oh, I can't do this, but instead, God, thank you. Thank you for making me a part of your kingdom. Let your kingdom come. Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Let it be done in me so that the future new me will walk in what I'm promised. Because I was once darkness, but now I'm light. As a result, let's live as children of the light. Lord, we thank you this morning for the calling and nature of your kingdom. 
Lord, I confess, there's so much in my head that goes beyond. I, I can't even wrap my head around this teaching. I can't even, besides faith, try to explain it completely. So I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would take my failings and weakness of words and make them become life to people right now. I pray for anyone who is here today who has not become a part of the kingdom of God. Lord, I pray they won't put it off. I pray they won't say, oh, I'm going to do that, but not today. Instead, Lord, let this be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray for those of us who at times have picked up this mixture of some of the world's teachings with your teaching and try to make our own kind of teaching that is more palpable for each of us, that we like. And instead, Lord, may we singularly come before you and say, God, you are my all. You are my everything. I trust in you and you alone. Lord, I pray that we would be a forward, kingdom-minded people, not dwelling on the past, not putting our thoughts and eyes behind us, but instead standing in the, on the edge of tomorrow, where we stand, we would look forward to what you have. Stand up with me, if you would. In Joshua 1 through 3, he brings the people to the river, Jordan. And God says, we're going to cross this river. And God has chosen the worst possible time to cross the river. He's chosen the river when it's at flood stage. He's chosen the river at a place where it's most difficult to cross. He's chosen a place that it's impossible for the people to, to go forward. And he says, priests, put the Ark of the Covenant on your shoulders and go walk out into the river and stand there. The Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God. And he's saying to the people of God, you can't go back into the desert. The only place you can go is forward through the river by my presence into the land that I promised you. Over 17 times the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God is mentioned in Joshua 1 through 3. You're today staring maybe at a river that you can't cross on your own. It seems as if, as if it's flooded. Maybe your river has to do with health. Maybe your river has to do with um, your own junk. Maybe your river is not knowing what the future holds, like the nation of Israel once they get through. But the presence of God is there to guide you. The presence of God is there to direct you. The presence of God is there to say, my kingdom come, my will be done in your life. Keep your eyes fixed on me. There is a future. Even if that future is death, there's a future. Let's just worship him. I want to encourage you to receive whatever it is that God's kingdom is provoking in your heart and in your life today, in his might and in his power. This is a time of offering. If you have a prayer request or an offering to bring, 
this is the time. There are a number of different ways.